This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations have that, as you may be familiar, 70 times seven. It's a little bit ambiguous in terms of the translation. 77 times. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Since the week after Resurrection Day during Easter season, uh, some refer to it as Easter Tide, the season between Easter Sunday running up till Pentecost, we've been in a series on the topic of peacemaking and conflict. And uh, we, we, we launched this looking at the phrase Jesus said three times in the Gospel of John chapter 20, twice on Easter Sunday evening and once eight days later to Thomas the doubter. Peace be with you, shalom be with you, or arguably simply, shalom is with you. And we talked a little bit about what peace is, biblically speaking. What peace is, how God brings it through Christ, and what it means for you and me. We went from there to talking about James 4 and the inward war of desire that fills, uh, fuels so much of our conflict. We talked about Matthew 5, that famous impossible passage, love your enemies. And after doing that internal and foundational work, we moved on to last week, what we can call the nuts and bolts of conflict resolution. Like there's, there's actually a map. There's like an Ikea instructions list that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of Matthew in a few places about what to do first, then second, then third, if you're in entrenched conflict with somebody. And this week, we're going to move on to something I considered doing before those instructions, but, but I wanted to do now because 
Uh, one, I wasn't ready because I think it's the hardest sermon on this topic. But two, because I think a lot of times uh, forgiveness, which is what this passage was all about, it sometimes follows the actions. There, there are some times, according to Scripture, where there's an invitation to go through the motions that don't necessarily co- correspond to how you feel when you're in bitter conflict with someone who's hurt you in a way that matters, that's not trivial, that's maybe even life-changing. Forgiveness isn't an all-at-once process. So today we're talking about forgiveness. What happens at the level of the heart that Jesus says, and this is hard, and I only say it on the authority of Jesus, both in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer tag on that we read during our confession this morning and right here. It is not actually an option to forgive. I don't know if you knew that. And I almost, that's why I didn't want to preach on this yet, because I know the hurt that's in this room. And I, I know at least enough about what it means to say that out loud to know that that makes a lot of you want to run out the back door right now. That forgiveness isn't an option. It's hard. If you've forgiven someone and it wasn't hard, that just means that the offense didn't matter to you very much. It's really hard. But Jesus says it's necessary. It's necessary because the alternative to forgiveness, not forgiving, is to hold someone in contempt, to hold someone in bitterness, in resentment, in hatred. The writer Anne Lamott said something, I think it's become kind of a famous line, and for all I know, she got it from someone else. She says, not forgiving someone is like drinking rat poison yourself and then waiting for the rat to die. It's something that you're holding on to internally like it's going to do something, and it will, just not to them, to you. That's not forgiving. That's the alternative. Flip side, when Christians do exercise forgiveness, when it makes no worldly sense, it makes national news. And I could have used a number of options. I'm going to use one that a lot of you know about and that we talked about in this church some when it first happened four to five years ago. Uh, You're all familiar that in June of 2015, Dylan Roof went into Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and sat down in a prayer meeting with a group of African-American Christians, and after an hour, he began shooting. And nine died. It went to trial a few years later, and at the close of the trial, the judge gave the families of the victims an opportunity to speak, and Felicia Sanders, the mother of one of the victims that day, said, what's, I think, now become fairly famous, if, if you're not familiar with it, listen up. She said to Dylan Roof, You took my love away from me, and since June 17th, 2015, I've gotten to know you. I know you because you're in my head all day. I forgive you. She said more at the summary. I forgive you. It was powerful. It was baffling to many and to me. But what I want to ask you you all about as we look at the words of Jesus and as we think about those powerful, baffling instances of forgiveness that seems impossible, we have to ask, what exactly happened? What happened internally with Felicia Sanders? What changed? What were were the things involved in granting that kind of forgiveness? 
And secondly, how did she do it? So what is it, briefly, then how exactly in the world do you forgive in this way? What and how? The what and how of forgiveness. First, what? Jesus tells Peter a story. Jesus doesn't define forgiveness here. I'm going to try to define it, but, but hold it loosely because what Jesus says is more important than what I say. Jesus tells a story about forgiveness. Peter says, how often should I forgive? You know, can I count them on my fingers maybe? And Jesus says, no, you're, you're thinking entirely the wrong question. You know, even if you think in multiples, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not getting it. We're talking exponentially more than what you conceive of. That's the kind of forgiveness that's required of you. And he tells a story about a king with many subjects. And he goes to one who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, here's what the first readers would know that you and I wouldn't pick up on right away. 10,000 talents is a silly amount of money. It's like almost not serious. One talent was about 20 years of labor for like a working everyman. 10, that's one talent. One talent was 20 years of labor. Let's say, I don't know, for a, a, let's just say a Philadelphia public school teacher. Think of it that way. Think about 20 years of labor. If, if they don't spend any money on food or rent or mortgage or, or on gifts or anything else, on utilities, and they save all their money, that's one. 10,000 of those is what this person owed. And he falls on his knees and says, I'll pay it. Just give me time. And it's ridiculous. Of course he's not going to pay it. The king knows that. He knows it. It's impossible. It's just a desperate, desperate plea. 10,000 talents. I mean, it's really hard to estimate, but it's, it's like at least $5 billion. Give me $5 billion right now, or you and your family will be sold for whatever you know, pittance I can get back for you relative to the $5 billion that you owe. And he pleads, and the king just lets him go. That happens. The king just says, forget it. Forget about the $5 billion. Fast forward, that forgiven servant sees somebody else who owes him 100 denarii. You also know, you need to know about, know about um, what that amount is. One denarii is about one day's wage. So um, take 100 days wages. You know, it, like a, a Philly school teacher. Um, let's just say that'd be, I don't know, something like $15,000, hundred days wages, maybe more than that. So we're not talking about a, like a, a sum that doesn't matter. A hundred days wages, you or I would lose sleep over that if you were owed $15,000. This isn't nothing. In, in some ways, it's like a more comprehensible amount, right? Like if $5 billion, I'd argue that none of us can really understand what $5 billion means like in our day-to-day -day lives. But we do understand what $15,000 means in our day-to-day -day lives. In some ways, it's a more comprehensible amount. It's like the more reasonable amount to conceive of. And it's hard. Your heart and mine would be hard. But the whole question, the whole parable, and it's not a complicated parable, is this. The whole point is this. What does the $5 billion you've been freed from have to say about the $15,000 you're owed? That's Jesus' story about forgiveness. Jesus Christ is saying, again, on the authority of Jesus alone, I say this to you. 
You need to think about your own individual debt before God as this kind of incomprehensible amount. And do we? Do we think about our debt individually? This is, this is meant to be thought of in individual terms. He's talking to Peter. Do you think of your debt before God in these terms? And relatedly, do we think about the cost absorbed by God as an equally incomprehensible amount? Jesus Christ refers to his death on the cross in Mark 10. It's still ahead of him. He refers to it as the ransom. The ransom, the satisfactory amount that's given for the life of the world, the world. The wealth of God, an incomprehensible amount, in the life of Jesus is what was required to ransom the world. And Jesus is saying, one way you can test your experience of the grace of God, one way you can test your experience of the freeing, costly, pardoning grace of God is whether you're able to release another person at the heart level from the debts that they owe you that, you, that, that they cannot pay. Let me say that again. One way you can test your experience of the grace of God is whether you can release another person from the debts they cannot pay. That's the story. That's the story. I hope it's not too complicated. Let me work from that to give you a layered definition. Some sound bites, because I know this is how some of us carry things with us. That's how I do a lot of the time. First, what is forgiveness? It is not, first of all, a feeling. It's a decision. Forgiveness is a letting go. It's a debt removed. It's something on a, a, a list, like a written down debt. This is how some of the biblical language can be described. S like a balance sheet with a line through it. It's an act. It's a decisive, will-based action that feelings can catch up to but it is not primarily a feeling, it's an act. It's granted before it's experienced. That's forgiveness. Secondly, forgiveness is not a forgetting, it's a removal. Now there is biblical language about God not remembering sins. Actually today's reading after the confession was from Jeremiah 31 verse 34. God himself says through the prophet, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But get this. That doesn't mean God cannot remember. It means he will not remember. It's not like God saying, you know, I, I know humanity sinned against me, but for the life of me, I just can't remember what they've done. I just can't, can't, can't recollect. The, it's not like you, the, the king in the parable would forget that he forgave a $5 billion debt. It's not that God cannot remember, it's that he will not remember. He will not let the debt control the relationship anymore. Thirdly, it's not an excusing. It's not making excuses. It's a costly absorption of the debt. You know, the very fact that forgiveness is needed and granted 
indicates that what someone did was totally inexcusable. So, what is it? It's a setting free. It's an erasure of a debt that another cannot pay. It's a letting out of prison, and it's unearned, and it's merciful. So how do you do it? That's what it is. How do we forgive? Uh, there's commonly been three dimensions to understand how it works to actually do it. There's an upward dimension, a me and God dimension. There's an inward dimension that's like me wrestling inwardly. And then there's an outward dimension between me and you. Upward, inward, outward. Here's the upward. You know, Peter, when he says, how many times, we've already said this, but let's just reinforce. How many times, Jesus essentially says, you're using the wrong categories. How many times you forgive. It's not going to happen through using your rational faculties to count things or measure them or weigh them. It is not going to work that way. Just put aside that entire category. And he gives a silly example to make that point. There is no correspondence to reason or to actual transactions in terms of money. Just put it aside. It can never work that way. It's a gift from above that we enter into. That's forgiveness. It's limitless. Limitless. It is from everlasting to everlasting. That is the total and free and beautiful forgiveness that you and I receive from God. To say it's greater than the debt we're owed is an understatement and almost itself doesn't even make sense. It's a different category. Everlasting to everlasting. You can't conceive of it. That's the point. But it's free and it's total and it's yours. Keller says this, Tim Keller. Every time we pray through the Lord's Prayer, which we pray today, that we are to, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we immerse ourselves in the remembrance of our free forgiveness through the costly sacrifice of Jesus so that we can freely forgive others. So that's the upward dimension, the inward dimension, the wrestling that happens, the granting of forgiveness. As I said before, it is granted before it's experienced. And that means it's both an event, it's a will declaration, I forgive you, but then it's also a process, if that makes sense. It's complex. It evades a simple, brief, 10-word phrase. It's an event and a process. Ken Sandy wrote a book that I've mentioned before. It is not perfect, but it's a helpful 101 map to peacemaking. When he talks about forgiveness, he tells a story of the time he found forgiveness most impossible. And I give you his prayer to God as a bit of a script, if you need one, about the kind of prayer you might pray if you're finding forgiveness impossible, if it's an internal wrestling match. This is what Ken Sandy has prayed again and again and again. God, I do not want to forgive this person, at least until he has suffered for what he did to me. He does not deserve to get off easy. Everything in me wants to hold it against him and keep a high wall between us so he can never hurt me again. But your word warns me that unforgiveness will eat away at my soul. The wall I put between me and him becomes a wall between me and you. More importantly, you've shown me that you made the supreme sacrifice 
giving up your own son in order to forgive me. Lord, please help me to want to forgive because I don't. Please change my heart, soften it so that I no longer want to hold this against him. Change me so that I can forgive and love him the way you have forgiven and loved me. Take that or leave it. That's just one man's plea when he has no ounce of desire to respond to Jesus' command to forgive. It is an inward wrestling match. And the need to forgive should drive you back to Jesus because biblically speaking, forgiveness apart from Jesus can't be done in a healthy way. It should drive you back in your wrestling to Jesus. Finally, the outward dimension, and I'll end with this. Upward, inward, outward. I want to say the ultimate goal of forgiveness is a reconciled relationship. This takes a great deal of time. It is not always possible. Reconciliation It takes more than one party to reconcile. It does not take more than one party to forgive. It does take more than one party to reconcile. And it should include the pursuit of justice. I think it's helpful to distinguish between forgiveness, which is granted on a heart level, and reconciliation, which is that outward reconnecting. The first has hopes for the second, but it does take two parties. And we're getting, we're getting into what we're going to actually talk about next week, which is forgiveness and repair. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that the other person never seeks to repair at all what they have done. That is not what forgiveness means. It just means they cannot fully or eternally Even in a court, and most of the ways we're wronged in this life, we'll never see the inside of a courtroom. But even if it did, even if all the wrongs did get to a courtroom, it couldn't bring full and final and total restoration and repair. The taking of a life is just one easy example of that, where forgiveness must happen even if repair is demanded. But there is a lot to be said biblically about repair, and we're going to go there next week. Reconciliation, where possible, has been called transacted forgiveness. Forgiveness completed. And this takes a lot of wisdom. Just as a preview for where we'll go next week, there may be times when you forgive someone, but you can't afford to absorb the consequence of such wrongdoing. You might need their help to be made whole just for the sake of keeping you and your family under a roof. Imagine some examples. We'll we'll get into it next week. Proverbs 19.19 says, A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. It's basically a way of saying, sometimes the wisest and most loving things for an offender is to be caught in a pattern of misconduct. It doesn't mean you don't forgive them. It just means you don't necessarily remove every consequence of their sin. Forgiveness does not automatically release a wrongdoer from all consequences. Okay, so we're going to get into that a little bit more next week. But I, I want to end, and I think this really comes together here, the, 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 the vertical dimension, my relationship with God, from everlasting to everlasting, the forgiveness I receive with God, the inward struggle, and the reaching out. All three of those, inward, in, <laughs> upward, inward, and outward, are really captured in a beautiful story by Corey Ten Boom who you may know uh, survived the Nazi prison camps uh, in the 1940s. Her sister, Betsy, 
and her father did not escape the prison camps with their lives. She did and lived throughout the latter 20th century to give her testimony of grace and forgiveness in the wake of the horrors of Nazi persecutions. This is what Corey Ten Boom said about a speaking tour that she was on toward the end of her life. She says, I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him. Him, the former SS man, Nazi soldier, who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of the prison camp. This man was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since my days in the prison camps. And then she saw him in church. Suddenly it was all there before me. Those days, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister's pain-blanched face. This man came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing to me. He said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, Christ has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal about the need to forgive, I kept my hands at my side. I wouldn't shake his hand. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of my thoughts. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I tried to raise my hand, but I could not do it. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him, his forgiveness his goodness. When Christ tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And that's the gospel. That's, that's the whole nine yards. Impossible. Impossible for us to reach God. God has to come for us. Impossible for us to love another as we should. God has to. He has to by his grace at work within us who have met the Savior, reach out from us to another. And so that's for those of you who know the impossibility of forgiveness. We come to this table every week not just as a memorial, not just as a memorial, although it is that, but for the strength we need to accomplish his will for us in the least. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.